In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Well, good morning and welcome to Renewal Church. Isn't that great? I thought it was important for us to hear the whole Christmas story before we talk a little bit about what it means. I'm Pastor Jared. Today we're going to be talking about how Jesus is the Savior of the world and what on earth that means. And, um, you know, in the Christmas story, all the people who were encountering Mary and Joseph and the shepherds, they didn't know who Jesus was going to be. They had never seen a live nativity before. They were the first live nativity. They had no idea who this baby was going to be. And so they're listening and trying to figure out from the clues who Jesus is. And one of the things that's said about him is in this Christmas story is that he's a savior. And I, I, I love this Christmas story. I don't know about, about you, but um, I didn't grow up in church. We didn't hear the Christmas story. I've, I've shared this before. All we knew was the Alvin and the Chipmunks Christmas album. That's all we ever did. But as I, as I came to follow Jesus when I got a little older, now I have a family of my own. So every Christmas morning, we read the Christmas story before we open presents. And that might be a great idea, or it might be a horrible idea because we're teaching our children to speed read the Bible, right, so that they can get through the Jesus part to get to the Nintendo Switch part. Um, but that's what we do, and we read it year after year. And I've noticed this about the Christmas story. It's a really strange story. There are some odd things happening in the Christmas story. Here, here's one. The Son of God is being born, 
okay? But the sovereign God of the universe who controls all things does not reserve a room in the inn for them. So that's, that's odd. Here's another strange thing. There's supposed to be this cosmic announcement happening, but instead of uh, the angels going to the kings or the, the religious leaders or the priests, they show up to shepherds. It's just, it's an odd thing. Um, here's, another, here's another odd thing. Have you ever noticed, maybe you've seen a nativity scene before, Mary puts down her newborn baby in a feeding trough. Is that a, have you ever wondered about that? I mean, have you ever, you know, like, there's no lack of people who will hold a newborn baby. You know, it's like, you know, it's like, it's like Mary and Joseph, and she's like holding him, and she's like, just gave birth. She's like, Joseph, my arms are sore. Would you take the baby? And he's like, I mean, I'm exhausted from you giving birth. Maybe you could just put him down. I mean, I don't, just put him down, Mary. And I don't think it's a coincidence that we never hear from Joseph after Jesus' 12th birthday because maybe Mary murdered him, right? Like, why are they putting this baby down? Um, here's another strange thing. The angels show up and announce this. They say, I bring you good news that will be great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. There's a lot of things that can cause great joy and can be good news for you. You know, if the angels showed up to you and they said, hey, great news, you're getting a raise this year, that's going to cause great joy. If they show up and they say, hey, guess what, you're going to be blessed beyond your wildest dreams, that's good news. They say, hey, guess what, great news, Belichick wasn't really cheating, it was just a misunderstanding again, right? It was just the film crew didn't know what they were doing. Great news. But if someone shows up to you and say, hey, great news for you, your Savior's here, you're going like, <laughs> that doesn't sound like good news. What if you got on an airplane and the pilot said to you, um, hey, welcome to Boston Flight 323 from Boston to Atlanta. We're going to be flying at about 36,000 feet. And also the savior of today's flight is already on the plane. So sit back and relax and just enjoy the flight. You go like, pause, time out. The fact that our savior is on here could not possibly be a good thing. But when the angels announced that there is great news that a savior's been born, they took it as good news because to them, they, they didn't have 2,000 years of church history. They didn't know who Jesus was. When they heard Savior, they didn't think about Jesus. They, they, they didn't think about church history. When they heard Savior, they were thinking about something completely different. When they heard Savior, they thought Caesar, Caesar Augustus, the leader of the Roman Empire. And if you're following along in your notes today, that's in your notes. When they heard Savior, they thought Caesar. And do you know why that was? It's actually very simple. Because Caesar was explicitly called the Savior. So what we're going to do today is I want to I show you this from, uh, from history. So we're going to look at a little bit of history to understand what they thought a Savior was. And after we look at history, things are going to get intensely personal today. So this is just kind of your heads up. We're going to start with history, and then, man, I'm going to start meddling in your business, okay? So just be ready for that. It's coming. So when they heard Savior, they thought Caesar because Caesar was called a Savior. In your notes, you have this thing called a Priene calendar inscription. Uh, the Priene is a region. It's in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And they, they, they were carving this calendar, this Roman calendar, and they put an inscription on it. And it's a little bit long, but I'm going to read it to you. And I want you to listen for the religious language that we hear in the story of Jesus in, when they talk about Caesar Augustus, the emperor of the Roman Empire. So here's what it says. Since providence, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus. Now, who's Augustus? That's 
Caesar Augustus, whom she filled with virtue that he might benefit humankind, sending him as a savior, both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. So if you're wondering what a savior is, he ends war and arranges all things. And since he, Caesar, by his appearance, excelled even our anticipations, surpassing all previous benefactors and not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he has done. You got to let somebody who inscribed this had a real rhetorical flourish. You know, it's like, Anyway, um, since the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the good tidings for the world that came by reason of him. So they use the word God to refer to him. They talk about good tidings. That's the Greek word gospel in the inscription. So when they announce this Jesus has shown up on the scene and they announce him as a savior, they're not thinking, oh, good, someone's come to take away the sins of the world and be light. You know, they're not thinking about the Christmas story. They're thinking about Caesar because in Greek thought, a savior is someone who ended war. You could think of that as peace. Why don't you put up the next slide? And someone who arranges society or orders society. In other words, someone who brings justice because a rightly ordered society is a just society, would you say? And so a savior is someone who establishes peace and justice in society. So when they refer to Jesus as a savior, they're taking this idea and applying it to him. My favorite um, New Testament commentator is a scholar named N.T. Wright. And there's another long quote from him, and I'm going to read it to you again today. There's going to be a lot of this on the front end, like I said, and then we'll make some application of it. Listen to what N.T. Wright says about this language of Savior being applied to Jesus. He says, if Jesus is Messiah, he is, of course, also Lord, Kyrios. The main challenge was to the lordship of Caesar, though certainly political, was also profoundly religious. Caesar demanded worship as well as secular obedience, not just taxes, but sacrifices, He was well on the way to becoming the supreme divinity in the Greco-Roman world, maintaining his vast empire not simply by force, though there was, of course, plenty of that, but by the development of a flourishing religion that seemed to be trumping most others, either by absorption or by greater attraction. Caesar, being a servant of the state, had provided justice and peace to the whole world. He was therefore to be hailed as Lord and trusted as Savior. This is the world in which Paul announced that Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, was Savior and Lord. And so Caesar comes and he establishes peace. Now think about how Caesar established peace, the same way that uh, kings and presidents establish peace today, which is that Caesar would come into your country with an army, he would conquer it, he would, he would slaughter anyone who opposed him, and then he would conquer all of your neighbors, your surrounding neighbors in your region, the countries around you. So those neighbors that you used to fight with, you don't fight with anymore because Caesar has demolished the armies of all of the countries, and if you raise up an army, he will crush it and kill you all. And therefore, there's peace. Isn't that wonderful? Caesar has established peace. And of course, he does establish order and justice in, in his Uh, territory that he rules as well, because again, he puts governors in place. There's often um, a Roman garrison. There's often, we know that there were centurions in in Judea, and a centurion oversees a hundred Roman soldiers. And so, you know, you're not allowed to take justice in your own hands. You have to appeal to the governor, and they make sure that there's justice, and they will do it brutally, and they will do it swiftly. They are often judge, jury, and executioner. And so he establishes a type of peace and a kind of justice. Now, Into this world, Jesus is born, and he is called the Savior. Jesus is going to establish a world of peace 
and a world of justice. And think about that. Can you, can you imagine Boston with no more murder, no more assault, no more violence? A Boston that's marked by justice. So every system is perfectly arranged so that no one is benefited or harmed because of prejudice or bias or anything like that. When the Bible says Jesus is Savior, it says he's coming to create that kind of world. He is going to bring about the world your heart longs for. So that's basically the history of the word Savior. But it raises a very, very interesting question for all of us. Which, if that's what Jesus was coming to do, he's coming to establish justice and peace in the world, then why is the Bible constantly focused on sin? Why all this talk about repentance? You know, Jesus came to this world, they said he was a savior, and then he basically didn't change any system in his entire lifetime. We don't see any change in the systems of oppression. Jesus does not take over ruling the world or the government. He does not change the pervasive discrimination against non-Romans, which was rampant throughout the empire. He doesn't set all the slaves free. And he doesn't return the rule of the provinces to the displaced indigenous peoples. Jesus doesn't do any of that. Jesus, in fact, was a, was a disappointment to quite a few people. They thought he was going to bring peace and justice for the nation of Israel. But he lived and died and he taught and the Romans were still in charge. Tax collectors were still funding the, the oppress their own oppression of their own people. And as for peace, Jerusalem would be essentially bulldozed to the ground in 70 A.D., when Jesus' ministry was over, his own disciples would say in Luke 24, the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. We had hoped he was going to be a savior. We thought he would bring about peace and justice, but he's dead, and so I guess our hope looks pretty foolish now. Why didn't Jesus fix everything? Why is our world still so horribly broken? Why didn't Jesus fix the systems in the government? And the answer to that, to put it simply, is that Jesus had bigger plans than Caesar. Caesar brought peace and order by conquering the world with force. Jesus is bringing peace and justice by conquering men's hearts with love. Jesus is preparing you and I for the world we all long for. Jesus will bring peace and justice someday, but first he needs a people who are ready to live there. Do a little thought experiment with me. Let's take Boston. Let's take all the people out of Boston. Let's take four million people out of Boston. We'll put them on a barge in the Atlantic for a little while. That seems like a good spot. And we'll come into Boston and we'll fix everything. We'll make sure that it's a place of perfect peace. We'll fix all the systems so that the government works perfectly. There is no discrimination. There is no bias. It is a place of perfect peace. It's a place of perfect justice. And then we'll take those 4 million people off the barge and we'll put them back in Boston with perfect systems. And what will we do to it? Yeah, we're gonna turn that place back into Boston. You know what I'm saying? That... You know, you can create this perfect utopia, and if you take broken people and put them in it, they will turn it into a hellhole. 
That's what happens. Right, so what Jesus is actually doing here is he is preparing people to live in a place of perfect peace and justice. He has come first to do for you and me what he's going to do for the whole world. He has come first to prepare us for a perfect place so that when we go there, we don't mess it up. You know, the, the, the biblical language for it would be Jesus is going to redeem for himself a person from every tribe and tongue and nation to live in, in a new heavens and a new earth, a place of perfect peace and justice. Let me try to summarize what I'm saying. Jesus came to prepare you for a world of perfect peace and justice. But let's put it another way. Jesus wants to bring peace and justice into your life so that you are ready to live in a world of perfect peace and justice. Put it another way. Jesus didn't come only to set things right, but to set you right. Let's put it another way. Jesus didn't come only to be the savior of the world, but to be your savior. And according to the Bible, Jesus does that by dealing with your sins and my sins. He rescues us from sin to make us fit to live in a place of perfect peace and justice. Matthew 121 is the summary of this teaching. Speaking of Jesus' birth in the book of Matthew, it says, She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And there it is. The S word. The four-letter S word that you really can't say in our society. Sins. You see, we don't think of ourselves as, we don't use that anymore, you know, it's, you don't hear people talk about that. You know, you don't show up into your office after you've blown a big deal and go to your boss and say, like, listen, really, I'm sorry. I've sinned against you and I've sinned against the company. And, like, they'd be like, okay, well, now you're definitely fired because you're weirding us all out talking about it. Like, stop, right? You know, we just don't tend to use that word. When you hurt your friend, you don't say, I'm sorry, I've sinned against you. You know, when your kids misbehave, you know, you know we don't you know, go to your kids and be like, you are a sinner, you know? We tend to say, we don't like the S word. We like the M word, mistake. Say, I made a mistake. And you know why we like mistakes instead of sins? Because mistakes aren't really your fault, right? It's, you know, it's like, if I knew a little more, if I had a little more experience, if I had some more training, then I, you know, if I had more life experience, I wouldn't have made a mistake. If it's a mistake, you know, I didn't do it on purpose. So you can't really punish me for it. I can't really get in trouble for it. Yeah, maybe I need to, like, you know, just make some restitution or something, but I can't be punished for a mistake. If it was a mistake, I could just try harder next time. If it was a mistake, I, need, I get another chance. If, there's a, if it was a mistake, I can learn a little bit more. I can go to a little more therapy, and then next time I'm going to do it right because I'm not a sinner. I'm a mistaker. But what if, you know, what if it wasn't a mistake? What if it was on purpose? What if it was, you know, a sin? Well, then, then it would be my fault. Then some of the guilt that I feel wouldn't just be for my Jewish mom. It might actually be my fault. You know, I might, it might be deserved, you know. If it was a sin, I don't even want to know what I would deserve if I've broken God's law, what should happen to me? I, I don't know, but it can't be good. And so I don't want to think of myself as a sinner. I want to think of myself as a mistaker who needs to do better next time. Listen to this quote from Pastor Andy Stanley. 
He says, until you embrace the fact that you're a sinner, you're not open to embracing the fact that God sent you a savior. As long as you're a mistaker, you're going to try harder, but you have to finally come to grips with the fact that no, you don't accidentally do things. There is something fundamentally wrong with you and me. He says, until you embrace the fact that you're a sinner, you will never embrace your savior. Here's the real truth. We are not mistakers who need to do better next time. We are sinners who need a savior. And God sent his son to forgive our sins so that we could live at peace with ourselves and peace with God. So that you will be ready to live in a world of perfect peace and justice. I mean, think about this. You know, if, if God were to just take, take all the people of Boston and just put them in heaven, we would turn heaven into hell pretty quick. He wants to get you ready. And this offer to give you peace with God, peace with yourself, forgive and deal with your sins so that you learn to live in peace and justice is an offer. God, God offers that to everyone, to anyone. Listen to the offer that the Bible makes. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned. Now, that's not a tricky little Greek word. It means everybody. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so what? So we better watch out? I mean, you might, think it, you might think it would say, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so because of that, you're going to get judgment. You're going to get wrath. There might be a lightning bolt in your future. You know, watch out. But that's not what it says. It says, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. That word justified, you know what that means? It means that when God brought his perfect justice to bear, Instead of giving us what we deserve, Jesus took what we deserve on the cross. You know, we sometimes still use the word justified in contemporary society. So, like, imagine that you're at a party and you're, you know, you're not supposed to be there. You've gatecrashed the party and somebody says, like, you know, how do you justify being here? Well, I want you to imagine for a second that you're in heaven and somebody comes to you and they say, what are you doing here? Because I know they're going to say that to me. Like, somebody's going to be like, what are you doing here? It's essentially a question of like, how do you justify your presence here? And the incredible offer of, of God is that he's, you can just say, I'm with Jesus. I am justified. What justifies my presence here is that your justice was poured out on him so that I can be freely forgiven of my sin. And that's what the Bible says, that that is given freely by God. So if, you're, if you're a note taker, circle the word freely in your notes because that's a big one. Because... We tend to think that if I'm just good enough, then God will love me and let me into heaven. Listen, the Bible does not say in any place in all 66 books that good people go to heaven when they die. It just doesn't say that. The Bible says that forgiven people go to heaven because they have that sin issue dealt with so that they can live in a place of perfect peace and justice. It is a free gift from God. The famous verse, John 3, 16, says, For God so loved the world that he gave, God gave a gift, and he's given it to us freely. It is something to receive. If you leave a gift wrapped underneath the Christmas tree this year, it does you no good. Jesus took what we deserved. He, he justifies us, and he does it freely. He's not looking for people who are trying to earn it by their good works. He's looking for people who know they're messed up, that they need a savior, they know they've sinned, and he gives it to us freely. And why does he justify us? So that we can have peace with God. 
Look at Romans 5.1. It says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we can have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you have peace with God? You know, in your own personal relationships, when you sin against somebody you love, there's no peace in that relationship until there's forgiveness. And that's how it is with God. God loves you. God wants to have a relationship with you. He made you. You know, you were God's idea. Before you were even formed in your mother's womb, you were an idea in God's mind. He made you. He loves you. God wants to have a relationship with his kids. But our sin causes conflict between us and God. And God wants to freely justify you so you can have peace with him. You know, today, I, today's message, for those of you who are Christians, is a reminder. It's a reminder of what Christmas is really about, that we've got Jesus, we've got this Savior. But if I could be perfect, and I, and I hope that this sparks some kind of passion in you for Jesus. But I'll be honest with you, I didn't write this message for the Christians in this room today. I wrote this message for those of you who aren't sure whether you have peace with God. And I know that you're here because I know your names and I know your faces and I know your stories. And I've been right where you are. I have sat in that seat and I've looked up at the stage and thought I understood and then in a moment realized I didn't know God and I didn't have peace with God. And I wasn't sure, like, if I died, I didn't know what would happen to me. And if I were to show up at the gates of heaven and they would say, well, how do you possibly justify here? I say, I don't know. But you can have peace with God. By receiving the gift of his grace. And so in just a minute, I'm going to pray a prayer. And it's going to go something like this. When I, in a few minutes when I pray, the prayer is going to go like this. It's going to say, God, I know that I'm a sinner who needs a savior, not just a mistaker who needs to do better. I believe that Jesus died in my place. And that he rose from the dead. And so I want to follow him. I commit myself to follow him to the best of my ability for the rest of my life. And when you pray that and receive that gift, you, you, it's like there is a spiritual transaction that happens where you are no longer at, at war with God. God is no longer an enemy for you. God is no longer distant for you. You have peace with God. God calls you his friend. God calls you his son or daughter. God welcomes you with open arms into heaven, the place of perfect peace and justice that he wants to prepare you for. And how do you know if you're supposed to receive this gift? How do you know if you're supposed to pray this prayer? You know, if you say, you're sitting there and you say, you know, I've never heard that before. And I think I get it for the first time today. If you say, you know, this today has been like, it's like I have this aha moment where I'm like, oh, I understand it now. I need, I'm not just a mistaker who needs to do better. I need a savior. If you, you come to that place and you say, you know what, there's, there's a lot of questions that I still have. There's a lot of barriers that I still have, but I know this. I need God to prepare me for a place of perfect peace and justice. I need God to forgive my sins. Then that's the Holy Spirit working in your life. And you can pray this prayer to receive God's gift, Jesus as your Savior and leader. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up at this time because we're almost done. 
But as they come up, I want, to invite, I want to challenge you today that if God is working in your life, do not resist God. This can be the day where you find peace with God and your eternity is changed from an eternity of chaos and disorder to an eternity of peace with God through his son, Jesus Christ. And you can do that by praying along with me the prayer similar to what I prayed before. And if you would bow your head with me, you can pray this silently, you know, in your heart as it were. You can pray it out loud if you need to. But you can place yourself in God's hands and receive his gift today. Pray with me. God, I know that I'm not a mistaker who needs to do better. I'm a sinner who needs a savior. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my forgiveness of my sins and so that he got what I deserved. I believe he rose from the dead and I commit myself to follow him to the best of my ability for the rest of my life. God, would you make me ready for heaven? Would you give me peace with God and make me a person who lives that justice every day? Thank you for forgiving my sins and teach me what it means to live for you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.